All right, as we continue in worship, let's take our Bibles and open to John chapter 12. We're continuing our study in the book of John. I want to read just the first 11 verses here. We'll turn our attention to those this morning. And then we'll open in a word of prayer and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume, a pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and give to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer steal what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with me, or with you, but you do not always have me. Mary, like Caiaphas at the end of chapter 11, seems to, Caiaphas says more than he knows. Mary does more than she knows, verse 7 and 8. And then verse 9 The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there. They came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Let's bow for a word of prayer this morning. Lord Jesus, we come to you proclaiming as a, as a company of the elect, a company of those called out this world to the marvelous light that you have to offer, the church, the church of the firstborn, the church of the resurrected Lord and Savior. Jesus, these are the things that you are, and these are the things that we celebrate this morning. We've done so in song. Uh, we thank you for the gifts of the arts and how they have so poetically ministered over centuries to the church and given her the words that she often feels she lacks in worship. We thank you for that. We come now to this uh, passage of scripture. Um, Lord, it lays before us with infinite and eternal truth for us to grasp. Lord, we simply want to be like Mary We don't want to be like Judas. We don't want to be like the crowd and the chief priests either. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we apprehend that simple truth. Uh, Give us the insight into Mary that we need to understand how it is that a woman can worship in this way. Uh, We long to be like her. So we need your help. We love you in Jesus' name. 
So can I ask a question this morning, ladies? What is it with Jesus, women, and worship? That's my question. John chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, Jesus announces to the Samaritan woman, who, by the way, is probably considered the principal herald of worship, the woman at the well. He says this to her, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The woman at the well. In Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, this is the woman who stands as the principal penitent, the principal uh, character who demonstrates to the church and the world at large what it means to come to Jesus and saving faith. This principal penitent, penitent uh, 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 is identified simply as a well-known sinner in her community. Her memorable moniker is this, those who are forgiven much love much. Jesus with unilateral divine authority forgives her of her sin once for all. And he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The events before us this morning in John 12 include another woman, a woman who is going to teach us about worship. They're the same events recorded in Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13, and Mark 14, verses 3 through 9. Our Mary is held in contrast to other contributors to these events here in John chapter 12. It is noteworthy that the it is noteworthy that the antagonist Judas fills our memories with everything worthy of disgust, shame, and reproach. The crowds and priests are lost to curiosity and fear of threatened power. This morning, the church, we want to begin with Mary. We want to get a long lingering look at her. So Mary, we simply identify as the protagonist in these events. She's the good guy. She's the guy we want to be like, earnestly. She's an extravagant worshiper. I like that word extravagant. You need to look it up. And I use it in the truest sense of the term. It is without restraint. Mary stands as the sentry at the door of Christ's passion. Matthew and Mark both declare Jesus' words to the bystanders concerning Mary. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world. Excuse me. It's going to happen a lot this morning. (laughs) What she has done will also be told in memory of her. She is a worshiper. That is the principal worshiper of the New Testament era. Any authentic, true understanding of the passion of Christ must come face to face with Mary. They must strain to understand what Mary somehow understood and grasped, which others around her missed Mary understood what others did not see. 
She understood what others did not see. What did Mary see? Well, Mary saw Martha serving. But what Mary saw in Jesus, service could not satisfy. Service could not satisfy. Service was not response enough. There was no possibility of any kind of prid quo arrangement, prid quo pro arrangement in this. There's no service that could be rendered to this Jesus that would somehow fill up a deficit that any true worshiper feels. No, Mary knew service wasn't enough. Mary, Mary uh, uh, saw loved ones all around. There were friends and family that had come to the dinner. They, they were celebrating. And, and, and yet friends and family could not distract Mary Brothers, sisters, family, friends, none of these beloved ones could distract her. Jesus was more compelling than a beloved family member coming back from the dead. The grip of family, whether for good or for bad, gets lost in the wonder of Jesus. Jesus had a miracle before. I would call it a grade A miracle. <laughs> the resurrection of a man from the dead. Miracles could not even compare to this Jesus. I mean, miracles, what more could a person want to experience than a miracle, we're told? In the face of Jesus, even miracles are only the husks of the true kernel of worship. The miracle of a living, breathing, once-dead Lazarus was lost on the preoccupied Mary, I would argue, particularly as John presents her here in John chapter 12. So how did Mary get to this point in her life? Well, for the answer to that question, we need to review a little bit of the events of John 11, particularly noting verse number 2 of John 11, here, here in John 11, at the very beginning of this whole subject matter concerning Christ and his I am statement, and it was Mary, oh, by the one, the one who anointed the Lord with the ointment. Here John fulfills what Jesus is going to predict in chapter 12. So what did this Mary do? How did she get to this place? Let's just observe some things. She, she, she heard Jesus say, verse number four, this sickness is not to end in death, of chapter 11, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. What seems so final to us is simply a glory vehicle of Jesus. She heard that. She actually heard it. She heard it. Verse number five, she heard, now Jesus, the, 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 the testimony of John, the Holy Spirit, the narrator, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. She knew that love. She understood that love. This is the inspired, authoritative record concerning Jesus. He loved. Whatever competing thought Mary might at any moment in her life entertain negatively 
with respect to Jesus and his sovereignty in her life, it was lost by this authoritative record that Jesus loves me. She heard it. And she believed it. Verses 30 through 37. Mary cries out to her Jesus, the cry of every church saint, the cry that is the pulse of the church as we wait Jesus' return. Verse number 32, Therefore, when Jesus came where Jesus was, she saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This cry comes from familiar geography for the true worshiper. It comes at the feet of Jesus. Here she's in chapter 11 at Jesus' feet. In chapter 12, she's at Jesus' feet. This Jesus is our Boaz, and we, like Ruth, find exclusive rest and security at his feet. Amen. That's where we belong. Jesus knew that, or Mary knew that. Can I say this, dear company of the elect, the church, this is your safe place. This is the only safe place for you. It is at the feet of Jesus. That's where you belong. That's where I belong. That's where true worshipers work themselves to be. And there she cries, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. For the church saint, everything is dying. Everything is dying. I'm dying. My loved ones are dying. Morality is dying. Creation is groaning and dying. Everything is dying. Mary reflects our heart in a very personal moment with respect to her husband or her brother, but by extension, the agony of our hearts all the time. Everything's dying. You know, Jesus knows us by experience. He was here. He created this world in perfection only to have it left to the oversight of sin and death. Oh, sin and death hated to see Jesus coming. They now know that their time is short. Our task, like Mary's, is to persevere till he comes and he will come. Remember Jesus' word to the disciples, this sickness is not to, the, to end in death, specifically with application to Lazarus, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Then he stayed two days longer. Dearly beloved, Jesus could stay two days longer. Our task is to persevere, and to believe, and to find our way to Jesus' feet to talk to him and to worship him to worship him
she saw Jesus being, or the crowd saw Jesus weeping, or he saw them seeing them weep, and he was moved in spirit and was troubled. He wept himself. Mary saw all of this. She observed all of this. She saw how the Jews said, my, how Jesus loved them. There it is again, love. She saw Jesus being deeply moved in verse 38. Deeply moved. Verse 39. She knew he had said to Martha, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the very glory of God? Verses 41 to 42. She heard Jesus say this, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I knew that you, were always he- that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you have sent me. And then she heard those powerful words, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> she heard that too. And out of the tomb walked this napkin-clad, beloved brother of hers, risen from the dead. I mean, this is amazing. In sum, can I say this, dearly beloved? Mary observed and listened closely I would argue perhaps exclusively to Jesus, the lover of her soul. That's what she did. That's what she did. Mary lost herself in Jesus. Self was no longer germane for Mary. Let me say that again. Self, as any kind of project in her life, was no longer germane. Jesus Christ was her all. Mary had a new sense in her heart, a, a, a new foundation in her soul. The new birth gave Mary genuine affection for the lover of her soul. Before her very eyes was Jesus, the divine word of God, the divine logos, the living word. This Jesus who's reclining at the table, fully man, yes, but fully God. Richly embodying the surpassing treasures of all the moral excellencies of divine things. This Jesus, in herself, she saw her only abiding sinfulness, her only abiding unworthiness for this kind of love. Grace. At that moment, no glory was worth retaining. Humility and surrender is the only recourse. Nothing to be grasped. Nothing. Nothing to be retained. So Mary lost herself in Jesus. Mary understood things that others heard not. Mary estimated accurately. And here, here it is, dearly beloved. She estimated accurately the value of the object of her worship. How do I know that she estimated accurately? Well, I know from the passage the demonstration of extravagant, unrestrained worship. If Jesus, in fact, is who he says he is, the only worthy response is extravagant, unrestrained worship. Mary could not and must not give to the Lord what cost her nothing. She must not and she could not. The man after God's own heart established that truth back in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, by insisting on paying for a threshing floor that was going to be used to build an altar to the Lord 
to stem the Lord's judgment on David for taking a census. The floor was benevolently offered to the king. However, the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which costs me nothing. David is a man after God's own heart. Mary is a woman after God's own heart. To be an extravagant worshiper, my friend, is costly. That's costly. This gentle Jesus who had the power over sin and death bade Mary's full entrustment. Folks, worship at this level of understanding is extravagant and costly as a proposition. It's wholly personal and truly intimate. Jesus' person and love inspire humbling in ways that realign normal sensibilities. Sensibilities that seek to retain some ounces of personal glory or some ounces of self-dignity were absolutely unbridled upon a genuine reflection on the person of Jesus. Well, what was that? What did that look like? Well, this is the best way I can put it. Mary gave Jesus the glory of her extrinsic world. Mary gave Jesus the glory of her extrinsic world. What do you mean by extrinsic, Pastor Kent? Well, it's a cost to Mary not part of her essential nature. It was not a part of who she was. She gave him all the glory of that. This is perhaps better understood as the areas in our lives that others value and respect. She gave all that away. With a denarii being a day's wage for a fully employed laborer, given the many times in Judaism religious, cal religious calendar when people were prohibited to work, this amount that this nard was worth was probably more than a year's worth of wages. Nard is an oil extracted from the root and spike of the nard plant grown in India. Its purity, quantity in this case, in origin, account for its appalling cost. Well, how did Mary come by this? Well, one of two ideas surfaces in the commentaries. One, either uh, perhaps Mary was wealthy herself, and she purchased it. This I would equate to a glory that distinguished her in particularly in Bethany. Bethany was not known for its wealthy people. So if Mary was wealthy, she was identified by her community as being wealthy, and that glory she did not want to retain for herself. She joyfully gave it to Jesus. The second thought is this. Well, if Mary wasn't rich, maybe this was a rare family heirloom. A glory she possessed valued not only for its high monetary value, but beyond that, too, for its sentimental legacy value. And think of this, folks. Generations of sentiment and legacy come to a screeching halt as Mary breaks it and anoints the body of Jesus. Well, what would Grandpa think about that? Well, you know what? It just doesn't matter. What about great-great-uncle George who... You know, accumulated all this wealth, it just does not 
manner. Mary deposited it exactly where it belonged. Extrinsic glory. What extrinsic glory do you have? You have all kinds of extrinsic glory to give. You're talented, you're capable, you're able, you're interested. Some of us are wealthy. Some of us are wealthy in, in things that matter in terms of character. All of those things, folks. However people view you and identify you, I hope, like Mary, you want it deposited at the feet of Jesus. You want your glory to be nothing more than a glory vehicle that gives glory to Jesus. Right? That's how you become a worshiper like Mary. That's how it happens. You listen, you believe, and then you reflect on your own glory that you have to give. And you've got plenty of it. You're created in God's image. You have strength and capabilities to give. And Jesus wants it all. He's worthy of it all. He's worthy of it all. So Mary gave her extrinsic world. Mary also gave her intrinsic world. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by intrinsic is that which is part of her essential nature. We'd say this is her personality, her, her personhood. This is a little different. This is where it gets, really. <laughs> it just goes to a new level. Her dignity, her sensibilities, her motives and fears, all the glory of who she was in her feminine nature was surrendered as she lets down her hair and washes Jesus' feet. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 6 through 15, builds a huge case based on the axiom that a woman's hair is her glory. Now, I don't understand all of that passage. Well, the other pastors work that out in terms of its implications for the church. But the fact of the matter is this is very personal. This is an intrinsic glory. This is what made Mary who Mary was as a woman. No personal glory can be retained in the light of Jesus. This wasn't a transaction, folks. You can't think of it that way. It was a full-on surrender. It was a replacement of Jesus for Mary. Mary's assessment of herself in this moment of extravagant worship was not that she was broken. The arrangement was not an arrangement of some much-needed personal maintenance. Self simply is lost. Do you see that in this passage? Does that strike you? It's just lost. Mary's response indicated that the glory of self exists only as a tool to glorify Jesus. Self-thought for the believer as an end in itself, simply is not germane in this moment of worship. It's not. It just simply doesn't count. It's not that it's not important. It's just, it's just it's irrelevant. Your past, your present, your family, it just, it just gets lost out. It gets washed out. It gets lost. It gets lost the words of the hymnist, it gets lost in wonder, love, and grace. It just gets outshone. The brilliance behind all of that is infinite and eternal and amazing. So Mary demonstrates that any correct understanding of the passion insists 
that Jesus has no equal in glory. He just doesn't. She also teaches that all who would follow him, the Lord Jesus Christ, they must joyfully surrender what every, any fragment of glory they think themselves to have, whether extrinsically or intrinsically, in these moments of worship. So we have a second cruel character, and if we were in the children at this moment, I'd encourage you to boo. Boo! name is Judas. Um, we have to look at Judas. Uh, we're arguing that if we properly understand the passion of Christ, do you understand what I mean by that? The coming agony, the cross, the burial, the resurrection, we call it the passion week. We're familiar with that. If we're to properly understand it, we've got to wrestle with Mary. Well, if we're to properly understand it, we have to wrestle with Judas. Unfortunately, sadly, and we draw the circle around ourselves and we beg God that we're not Judas. Well, let's look at Judas here a little bit. Judas, if I had a title for him, I'd call him the antagonist. He's the bad guy. And this is the label I'd give on him. And this is the label I want to so warn my own character of. He is a parenthetic distractor. And I'm going to explain that here in a minute. Judas is a parenthetic distractor to true worshipers. So it's interesting to note, uh, given the full accounts, both in Matthew, Mark, and in John here, of this, this whole the set of events, that Judas is not the only one who's called out. Judas is just representative, in many ways, of all of the, many of the other disciples who were present. They all object to what seems to be an extravagant waste. Monies that could be used for the poor, especially in Bethany, again, which was a, which was a poor town. Jesus scolds all for their short-sighted inability to see his infinite and eternal value as Mary saw. Judas here, however, he's singled out for something a little different than the rest who failed to see. Unlike the other disciples, his cry for frugality was feigned. It was faked. He had no interest in frugality. It was a lie. Not only did he completely miss the inestimable value of Jesus' divine person, as did the others, but, but his character was riddled with parenthesis. What's the plural of parenthesis? Parentheses? Parenthesi? He had a bunch of them in his character. You know what a parenthesis is? A parenthesis is? In English, right? It's just sort of you're going along in a sentence and you slap down a parenthesis of some kind of information. It's really not. It's just, it's just there. It's, it sort of interrupts and sort of doesn't belong in a sense. But it's important to know. The Holy Spirit has some things important to know about Judas, a parenthesis. Our text gives two really parenthetical statements with respect to Judas. It's not really, uh, maybe in your Bible, it should have them blocked off uh, with uh, the proper grammatical uh, 
uh, form there. But our text gives two. Number one, he was a betrayer. And secondly, he was a thief. Those are the two things that resided deep in Judas's character. He was a betrayer and a thief. Think about that. The commentary on Judas's life is the commentary of one parenthesis in his character after the other. His sharp sense of financial values served as the feast upon which his wicked, parenthetic character feasted. There is a confluence between character <laughs> and supposed values. Not even was Jesus, uh, not even Jesus penetrated that cold heart, did he? I mean, talking about, you know, we're disciple-making church, we love disciple-making. And you imagine being discipled by Jesus? Well, folks, Jesus failed at this one, if we could put it that way, reverently. No. Judas was an apostate. Judas was a betrayer and a liar. And I say that uh, warning my own character. I think you could say maybe a kind way to put it uh, is uh, in terms of betraying, uh, I, we can tend to be opportunists with self-centered motive. Be weary of that in your character, dearly beloved. Or, these are things that I struggle with, okay? Or, I love to sort of always craft things in such a way where I don't necessarily look so bad. Now, some of that's usually true, right? I think it's true. But, but I think uh, be, be wary of that in your character. Just be wary of that. Those things, when they go to seed, they will become, whatever values you will hold, they will become sort of the, the feasting table at which your parenthetic character can take hold of and root. So it's interesting in our passage that this moment in Mary's life becomes the providence where this kind of individual is exposed. True worshipers expose these kinds of worshipers, like Judas, as well as other would-be worshipers. What do I mean by would-be worshipers? Well, worshipers who may at times be caught in the snare of, of the parenthetical worshiper, they have some hope. They have hope when they in time come to honor and seek to replicate the ones who understand the true and estimable value of Jesus, right? And Jesus makes that statement that Mary is going to stand as the person. In other words, they have hope when they identify with Mary. That they want to be that kind of a worshiper. They want a kind of worship that may in fact betray their own sensibilities about their own glory. And they're willing to lay it all out at Jesus' feet. Sort of a in a way of worship. So then finally this morning we have the foils. If you're interested with, your, uh, with, with, with uh, stories and how they work out, we have good guys, we have bad guys, and then we have the guys in the story who sort of 
uh, uh, they act as a foil or a mirror to help us to see either the goodness in the good guy or the badness in the bad guys. These are the foils. These are, uh, I would argue, in this narrative passage there too, they're the large crowds. You see that at the end of chapter 12. And there's the chief priests, plural. And the two issues these foils seem to wrestle with, they, they have a certain curiosity. The others are concerned about power. So these are the two issues. Not much needs to be said about these. They're foils. What's true of a foil? Well, is they just sort of get forgotten. They just are inconsequential. Um, I don't want to be a foil. I want to be counted for the cause of Christ. I don't want to be a mere curious follower of Jesus. I want to be more like Mary. I don't want to be like Judas. But doesn't Jesus himself say, I wish you were cold or hot because you're lukewarm? You're, you can't even be a negative example. <laughs> At least Judas serves us that way. Not much needs to be said here. Both are tragically incompetent and unacceptable in the face of the divine Jesus. Their error, friends, is to delay. Their error is to make self the central project of their thinking. They're merely curious, and they're merely interested in their own power. If that's you this morning, I would highly encourage you to abandon your foil ways and run to Jesus. And give him all the glory that you think you have. Lay it at his feet. Find your safe place at Jesus' feet. So in conclusion... Can we say this? Jesus is the lightning rod of all human history. There is no miraculous sign in John 12 and no sustained dialogue. Every paragraph from this point forward builds toward Jesus' farewell discourse. He's about ready to leave us. His passion and his bodily resurrection. Mary stands as the principal worshiper for the church age. She teaches us that Jesus' divinity and humanity are infinitely and eternally more valuable than anything else in the church's universe. He alone is worthy of our worship. And we ought to be tracking that worship toward personal extravagance in our life as we try to be more like Mary. Worship is the response to the value of the object worshipped. You and I are inescapable worshipers. Without Jesus, any little, any little glimmering trinket receives our ardor and attention, sadly. However, Jesus' brilliance his, is unsurpassed. He is of inestimable value. As fully God, his value is infinite and eternal. As fully man, his value is intimate and personal. Because Jesus has no equal, he has no rivals. It is the true worshiper's task to clearly demonstrate this. This is not some cultic put on ritual. It is the overflow of someone who truly understands the brilliance and beauty found in Jesus. It's someone who lives in light of reality. Heaven is where reality is. 
It is the result of exclusively observing and listening to Jesus, progressively doing that, working toward that, dear church. Self, with all of its sin and brokenness, foibles and folly, gets lost in the wonder of his glory and grace. In a word, the self simply becomes obsolete. Don't you love that? (laughs) I want myself to become obsolete. Against the backdrop of the infinite brilliance of the Lord Jesus Christ, affections of the true worshiper happily surrender to this Jesus. The affections, the very, that what makes me me. A surrender that requires all personal glory, whether extrinsic or intrinsic, to be used as tools to magnify Jesus. You and I have a glory to give. We've mentioned that. You and I are designed to worship. Jesus alone is exclusively worthy of worship. This kind of worshiper demands a verdict both from the lost and dying world and for those would-be worshipers in our faith community. May God fill Grace Church of Mentor with these kinds of worshipers. Let's pray. We need your help, Jesus, to be like Mary. Uh, um, You truly are inestimable in your value, Jesus, your nature, your person. Eternally God, fully man, uh, you are the, the redeemer of our soul, of our life, and we thank you, and we humbly want to work our way to your feet, Jesus. Forgive us for not finding our safe place there. There are a lot of competitors to would-be safe places. Help us to find it there and to find our security and love and worshiping you. And even when all around us is so crazy, and you know that, you were here, you had craziness all around you, and we thank you for the amazing example of Mary. And we, in fulfillment of Matthew and Luke, we declare that she is who we want to be like. Wherever the gospel has been proclaimed, it has been here in America in our time. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.